tonight I'd like to talk about faith, its relationship to wisdom, and the kind of counterpoint quality of mind of doubt. The word faith, for at least some of us, it doesn't necessarily have positive connotations. Many of us already have a relationship with this word faith and what we understand it to mean. And I know for myself, the meaning that I attached to faith was belief in something that was not provable. And I looked up in the dictionary this evening, and that is in fact one of the definitions. Um, The dictionary definition I found was belief that does not rest on logical proof or material evidence. And for myself, this was, this kind of faith was not something that I could very much resonate with or connect with. And so, Faith didn't seem to have a place for me in my life. So I'd like to explore what faith means in the context of our practice here, in the context of the Buddhist teachings, and explore a little bit about the quality. The word that's often translated as faith in the Pali is sada. And I believe it was, I can't remember, it was Carol or Sally perhaps, who said that the term literally translated means to place one's heart upon. And this is, a, this is an interesting kind of way to explore what the meaning of faith is. What is it that we place our heart with? To me, this evokes a connotation of trust. Other translations for this term, sadha, are confidence and conviction. This quality of sadha, or confidence, faith, conviction, is actually absolutely essential for our spiritual journey because it is from a place of conviction or confidence that we begin to actually engage. So to explore this, to begin this exploration on faith, what I'd like to do is to start out by talking about suffering. We all experience suffering. I think the term suffering generally to us connotates some kind of larger sufferings, the sufferings of the major kinds of tragedies in our lives, the suffering of a friend dying or a major relationship breakup or our own diagnosis of a 
very serious illness. Or it may mean the suffering associated with large environmental disasters. This recent hurricane, for instance, the the amount of damage that this caused and our response to that. Tsunamis, earthquakes. We all experience this kind of suffering, although this kind of suffering is more rare for us more common for us to experience is is societal suffering. Suffering that results from some kinds of discrimination. Discrimination of race, of gender, of age, of sexual preference. So much suffering in this world because of discrimination. And yet the suffering that is referred to in the Buddhist teaching, this entire, the entire orientation that the Buddha had for his search, his own search, was, is there a way to relieve suffering? Now the suffering was his whole orientation. And the suffering he was interested in relieving wasn't just this deep deeper kind of suffering, but also the more subtle kinds of suffering that we experience all the time, all throughout our day. We experience suffering because we don't like the kind of food that's out. We prefer brown rice to white rice. And there's maybe a a little bit of irritation that our preferred food isn't available. Or maybe there's a, a, a stress because of our work or a particular encounter with a friend that didn't go the way we'd like it to. It just keeps niggling at us. So many different ways that we experience stress, suffering, both in the large and the small. And the Buddha was interested in all of these. So the term, as I think most of you know, the term that's usually translated as suffering, Dukkha means much more than this broad kind of or deep, massive kind of suffering. So the term suffering, I think, doesn't really adequately translate the Pali word dukkha. And other, some translators have tried to come up with other translations. Stress is one that Tanisaro Bhikkhu uses. Other translations might be unreliability or unsatisfactoriness, unease, distress. Some of these kinds of words make it clear that this term dukkha means the whole range of this feeling that things just aren't the way we'd like them to be. So most of these kinds of suffering that I mentioned have some kind of, there's something happening in the world around those. There's a, there's a hurricane and there's, there's a lot of destruction. Or 
there is the actual breakup of a relationship. So there's something in the world that's happening, some given experience. This, this, um, the dukkha that the Buddha was seeking to find an end to wasn't to find a way that the world could be free of natural disasters because he knew that wasn't possible or even to be free of unpleasant experience. He knew that wasn't possible, but rather to be free of the mental reactivity to our unpleasant experience, to the natural disasters, to the tragedies of life. That we can, with an open heart, meet our experience. That open heart meeting experience, if it's meeting suffering, it's going to have compassion as a response rather than anger or frustration or hatred or rage. That open heart meeting beautiful experience is going to have joy as a response rather than greediness and wanting. So this is what he was pointing to, this reactivity of the mind. This is the dukkha, this reactivity. So our usual, we, have, we all have our own familiar strategies for dealing with our own struggles. And one familiar common strategy is that we think that the way to relieve this distress, this struggle, is to fix the thing in the world that's a problem or that we perceive as a problem. We may try to get rid of what we don't like, keep what we do like. Just this kind of continual sense of arranging things so that they are in line with what we'd like them to be. And if this doesn't succeed, then we may escape into sense pleasure. There's another strategy for working with things not being to our liking. So when we first meet our suffering, I think when we first, you know, that the whole way that we've been raised before we really meet a spiritual path, we think that it doesn't get much better than arranging the world. This arrangement of the world works for a little while. You know, we can arrange the world perhaps. Perhaps we can arrange the world for a little while so that it suits us. And then we have a sense of happiness that, oh, okay, I can relax for a little while. Things are just the way I'd like them to be. But the law of impermanence takes hold and things change. And so then we have to rearrange again. So we keep trying this rearranging and rearranging. We rearrange and it breaks down and we rearrange and it breaks down. So we ultimately know that this doesn't quite work for us. I do want to add a little piece here because often hearing this kind of a of an exploration around suffering 
this notion that fixing things doesn't really ultimately lead to a sense of peace, perhaps, is that this doesn't mean that we don't necessarily make an effort to change things. It's a little paradoxical, perhaps. Now, if there's injustice in the world, if there is, you see that because of discrimination, there is suffering in the world. The Buddha suggests we act to alleviate suffering. But the intention behind that action is not this sense of reactivity, of of aversion, of hatred, of rage, of hostility, but rather that of compassion. So we can act in the world. And the Buddha suggests we choose to act out of compassion rather than reactivity. So just, I just want to put that out there because often there seems to be this understanding of um, this teaching on suffering and that the, the, suffering, the suffering that the Buddha is talking about being in this reactivity, that this means we're not supposed to try to fix anything or change anything. And that's not what he's saying. So we meet this suffering in our lives. And some of us begin our journey, begin our exploration of a spiritual path through an encounter with suffering. The Buddha said that an encounter with suffering will lead to bewilderment or to search. He puts the question that when it leads to search, the question is something like, does anyone know a way or two out of this suffering? I know for myself, this is how I encountered my own spiritual journey, descending into a place of such deep suffering that I just could not find a way out. It was just a sense of, does anyone know how to deal with this? If in that space of search, when suffering, that meeting of suffering leads to search, if in that space we actually encounter a teaching that speaks to a way out of suffering, we may begin to have a sense of possibility that there is a direction that perhaps might help This is the beginning. This is the initial stirring of faith. Hearing that there is a possibility that someone has found a way. It can bring in a little bit of a sense of, oh, maybe there's something there. So it brings in a willingness to connect with that teaching, perhaps. This is just the very beginnings of faith. This is just the very beginnings of willingness to listen to a teaching. So in the context of our practice here, of our practice on this retreat and as our our Buddhist spiritual journey, this faith, this confidence is intimately connected with wisdom. 
the wisdom, in particular, of the Four Noble Truths. And here we are back at suffering. The Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth that suffering has a cause. It's not random in our lives. That it's caused by this essentially rebelling, reacting against things as they are, wanting things to be other than they are. And that there's a possibility for the cessation of suffering, the ending of suffering. The third noble truth. Then the fourth noble truth, the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering, the eightfold path. This is what we're practicing here, the eightfold path. So faith with respect to these teachings, this wisdom the Buddha discovered himself on the night of his awakening, doesn't mean simply believing these sort of putting them up on a pedestal or reading them in a book and saying, yes, I believe the first noble truth. I believe that wanting is the cause of suffering. I believe that there's a path that leads to the end of suffering. It doesn't do us much good to just simply have a sense of belief in these. The Buddha suggested that we need to act on these truths. So the faith in our Practice isn't about simply believing these. It's about the willingness to act, the willingness to engage. So the actions the Buddha suggested with each of these truths, we need to understand suffering. This understanding is a turning towards our experience. This isn't an intellectual exercise. You all know this. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's the turning towards our experience. What is this suffering? What is this experience? Understanding suffering in this way helps us to see how suffering is put together, the cause of suffering. So the understanding of suffering begins to allow us to actually see how the cause is connected how this wanting is connected to the suffering. And then we begin to see the second action that the Buddha suggested would be really helpful. Let go of the cause of suffering. Let go of the wanting. If you let go of the wanting, the suffering will not arise. Even just a thought experiment around these lines. If you have a sense that there's a problem in your life, you know, if there, were, if there were no reactivity to that external situation, a wanting it to be different, if there were no wanting it to be different, would it be a problem? So when the wanting goes away, the suffering goes away. So letting go of the wanting. And then the third noble truth, the task, the action, is to realize the cessation of suffering. Realize that it's possible. Realize the actuality that suffering can come to an end. And the fourth noble truth, to cultivate or develop the path. To develop the qualities of heart and mind that support our being able to understand suffering and to let go of the cause of suffering, which allows us to realize this release from suffering. So the faith that we begin to have, and it kind of comes in stages in a way, 
And we, we, may, we may see that there are people who have practiced. For myself, I you know, heard from a friend, wow, I found this really helpful. And that brought in a little bit of a sense of, well, maybe I would find it helpful too. So we, we take inspiration and we borrow faith, in a sense, from other people at the beginning. So we begin with this faith and the possibility of freedom from suffering and a little bit of a sense of faith that there might be a path, there might be some practices that would help us and some faith in those who have followed the path and realized some benefits and are able to express that. Yes, this has been really helpful for me. So these three, faith in the possibility, faith in the practices, faith in the people who have practiced it. This is faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, our three refuges. So for me, the way faith has expressed itself in my own practice It's kind of more like a scientific hypothesis. The Buddha suggested, here are these truths, here are actions associated with these truths. If you follow these actions, you'll experience some results. It sounds remarkably like a hypothesis, a scientific hypothesis. And so um, we can understand this kind of as, well, let's run the experiment. Our mind is a laboratory. Our minds and bodies are laboratories. Let's run the experiment of using mindfulness to understand the suffering and see what happens. So we examine the teachings in our own experience. We turn towards our suffering using the teachings, the practices, and mindfulness to explore our experience. And in this way, we may start to see some benefits for ourselves. We may start to recognize the power of these teachings for ourselves. So in this, in this, this is a kind of transition for us in terms of faith. Initially, we kind of have to borrow faith from others. As I said, you know, talking to people about how they have connected with the practices and what benefits they've received. We can read them and reflect on them and think whether they make sense or not. But it's not until we start engaging that we begin to taste for ourselves the truth of these teachings. And they are verifiable for ourselves. So in this way, the faith in this practice doesn't have that same quality of faith in something or belief in something that is not verifiable. We can practice ourselves and verify for ourselves that these teachings are effective. So in my own practice, I'll tell you how this unfolded for me in the the first months of my own practice. I'm very skeptical, very scientific-oriented, scientific kind of mind. But I was in deep, deep suffering. And I had tried everything that I could think of. And 
It was very much like what the Buddha said, does anybody know a way or two out of this? I have tried everything that I can think of. And I talked to a friend who had been doing this practice, and she said, well, this has been helpful for me. Why don't I send you a book? And so she sent me a book, and I began reading this book. And one of the key little bits, I didn't understand much from this book, but you know, the wisdom of the Buddha is actually pretty dense. Um, and so you know, even a tiny little bit of that wisdom, if you can even just get a tiny little bit of that wisdom and start to act on that, it's pretty potent. And so in reading through this book, which was Everyday Zen by Joko Beck, about one of the things I pulled out of this book was try observing your emotions rather than acting on them. And emotion, strong anger, was my main issue at that time. It was pretty much making me non-functional at times. I would find myself just in a rage, frozen at my computer, just oblivious to everything around me and in my mind in a rage. And so it was, I was pretty non-functional at times. And so the, um, this teaching, you know, observe it, it's like, well, what good is that going to do? <laughs> you know, it's like I had no idea how that would be helpful. And I had no training at that point in mindfulness whatsoever. Nobody to tell me, pay attention in your body, let go of the thoughts. I didn't have any of those. But it's like I thought, okay, well, it doesn't make any sense to me, but nothing else I've tried has seemed to work. So I'll see what happens if I try observing my anger. And I tried this. And I remember the first time I noticed it and remembered that I was going to observe it. I kind of said to myself, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try to pay attention to my anger when it happens. And um, the first time I noticed and remembered, my thought was, wow, yeah, I'm angry. What do I do with this? This feels really unpleasant. And I had no idea what to do with it. But in that moment, it's kind of like, I don't know what I do. I guess I go back to work. And in retrospect, in reflection retrospectively, I realized that um, that recognition of the anger, that moment, actually broke into the anger and allowed me to go back to work instead of being frozen in rage. So there's a little bit of space around that anger. And over time, over the course of months of doing this practice, I began to see more and more space around my anger. So the the faith, the confidence in that teaching, there was was getting some verification there. It was definitely heading me in the right direction. I knew, yep, you know, at least I'm not quite so strung out here. I can function more. So this was helpful. I could see that even just recognizing, yep, I'm angry, (laughs) it was really helpful. And then one day I was, um, I was in the kitchen. So that, that helpfulness encouraged me to keep, encouraged me to keep trying, keep practicing, keep exploring my anger. And then one day I was in the kitchen and I was cutting an apple and I was, you know, just, I wasn't trying to be mindful. I was just kind of present. And I noticed as I was cutting this apple that a thought appeared in my mind about the person that I was angry with. And in seeing that thought, I could see 
in that moment that that thought arose, that there was this impulse to jump on that thought and think more thoughts in order to get angry. So I could see that direction. I was heading in that direction. And in seeing that, having spent a lot of time paying attention to anger, noticing, wow, this is really unpleasant, the mind in that moment saw that it was headed towards a really unpleasant experience, and it let it go. It let go. I didn't even have to do it. The mind did it by itself. And I sat there. I stood there in the kitchen waiting to get angry because I hadn't had the experience of this person coming up in my mind and anger not coming up in my mind. But I did not get angry. And then I was so blown away. I, I was like, oh my God. This stuff is so powerful. That moment when I look at it now, that was, that was a seminal moment in my practice. It really, looking back on it, it was an it was it was understanding of the Four Noble Truths in that moment. I saw how the suffering was created by that movement towards wanting to turn myself up. And I saw that the mind could let go of that. I understood deeply the suffering of that reactivity. I saw how the letting go happened. I realized the freedom there. I could directly witness. I directly saw that had I not been doing that practice, this practice of observing, I would have been spun out in anger again. And I saw the non-arising of anger. I saw that anger did not arise. And I directly saw that the development of those qualities that I'd been practicing for the past few months had led me to this place. This was a moment of complete, deep confidence in the teaching. And that was really the moment that my, I felt, I feel like looking back on it, that's the moment I, I got on this path. So that was the moment of deep, verified faith. I knew for myself the benefit of these teachings. I know you all have times of your practice where you have experienced something similar. It helps actually at times to recall these insights, these times when our faith is verified. This supports the reminder of the benefits of these of this practice to remember how it supports you how it has helped you in your life we can do this to help cultivate this quality of confidence of faith so the the practice the the practice of engaging with these teachings leads us to actual verifying for ourselves the truth of these teachings, which gives us a taste of the wisdom for ourselves and leads us to greater confidence in the teachings, which kind of cycles through. So greater confidence leads to more interest in engaging with the teachings, leads us to deeper understanding of the teachings, which leads us to deeper faith. And so these two qualities support each other and encourage each other. The faith and the wisdom.
and yet. The practice isn't one continuing deepening of faith and wisdom. We get caught. We especially, I think, can get caught around the gradual nature of the unfolding of this practice. I think we're a culture of instant gratification. You know, we, we want the results quickly. And when we've had an insight, a recognition into a pattern, into a, a particular struggle that we've worked with, and we see, oh, this is how it's happening. Wow. And it falls apart in a moment like that. Sometimes we can have the thought, the belief, oh, I understand now. That's not going to happen again. And yet, (laughs) the pattern returns again and again and again. And we can, in seeing that, we can think, you know, I've seen through this before. You know, what's my problem here? We can feel like we must be doing something wrong if we can't see through it a second time or a third time or the fifth or eighth time it comes up again. We can feel like we're doing something wrong. Doubt comes in. Or maybe we figure, well, I must not have really seen through that in the first place. Or we figure, well, maybe it really didn't work. You know, it, it, wasn't re- it never really happened. The practice didn't really work at all. So this is doubt. The Buddha described doubt as being, or he compared doubt, he gave a simile about doubt as being like being lost in the wilderness. If we're in the wilderness, in particular, he described it as being lost in a desert. Imagine a desert, you know, there's very little in the way of landmarks in a desert. You take a few steps this way, you think, that must be the wrong way, better go back. You take a few steps that way. Oh, that can't be the right way. So there's this kind of wavering quality, a sense of not really being able to commit to any direction at all. This is how the Buddha described doubt. When we're caught in doubt, we come to a kind of a standstill in our practice. We might try something for a few moments and then think, ah, this isn't working, or there's another practice I should do. So we don't ever commit We don't commit when we're caught in this state of doubt. There's so many things we can have doubts about. And I think it's helpful to actually name some of these things because in my own experience, the different things that we doubt, there are also different ways to work with the doubt that comes up depending on the kind of doubt it is. So there's doubt in the teachings. You know, the Buddha taught 25, 2600 years ago. No such thing as iPods, iPhones, Macs, cars, 52-story buildings that planes fly into. You know, there was just a much simpler life. What could he have possibly had to say that would relate to us here and now? There's doubts that we can have in the teachers. Now, what do these teachers know? You know, 
that the, I know that there are much better teachers in Burma, so you know, maybe I should plan to go to Burma. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our ability, our capacity. We doubt the possibility that we can do this. This, I think, is probably one of the key ways we get caught. Everyone, we, we seem to have the sense that everybody else can do it but me. We doubt the practice itself. You know, what is paying attention to the in-breath and out-breath have to do with anything? Or we can get stuck wavering about what practice to do. Should I pay attention to my breath? Should I do some metta? Should I directly face this difficult state? Oh, maybe I should try metta. No, no, let me try paying attention. No. So we we waver. It's just like that being lost in the desert. So the most important thing with doubt is actually to recognize that it's happening. To to notice that doubt has, has come into our minds and is kind of got us locked into this wavering state. It has that, that, that feeling of, what, what should I do? In my experience, this recognition of doubt is the most important piece. Once we can recognize that doubt is happening, doubt really feeds on us not being aware of it. But when we become aware of it, we have a kind of a toe, a toe into the door to begin to help it to release. So I find that doubt is often experienced as a lot of thinking. So it can be helpful to get familiar with the ways in which your doubt manifests, what kinds of thoughts your doubt manifests as. In my own experience, I've found that if I find myself thinking about the practice, thinking about what kind of practice I should do, how this practice works, whether this practice even works, thoughts about the practice, if you're having a lot of thoughts about the practice, check in and see if doubt is present. This kind of thinking can often be hooked into our logical, rational kind of mind. And so it can fool us. Doubt like has this incredible, it's like an incredible masquerade that it, it puts on this costume of reason. I shouldn't be doing this practice. This practice obviously doesn't work for me. So it can hook into our rationality, which, you know, we we have a lot of trust in our thinking mind in this culture. And, And so doubt kind of, you know, brings that in and fools us into thinking that it's actually 
you know, a, ra- a rational, reason, reasonable thought. And so it can be really helpful to just begin to notice when we are thinking about the practice check-in, is there doubt present? So, as I said a few minutes ago, with doubt, I think there are different ways to work with it depending on the kind of doubt. If there are doubts in the teachings, the teachers, the practice, I often find it helpful to reflect for myself that the whole nature of this dharma is that the Buddha said, come and see, try it for yourself. He didn't say, believe me. He said, come and see. And so I come back to that sense of a scientific hypothesis for myself. So the Buddha didn't ask me to believe this, but can I run the experiment? Here's a teaching, can I run the experiment on my mind and body? Why don't I try the practice and see what happens to me? Certain kinds of doubt, can, it can be helpful with certain kinds of doubt if there's a, a lot of confusion about a teaching, um, you know, that you're not clear about a teaching and your mind is wavering about, well, how can I work with this if I don't understand it? That kind of doubt, it's usually helpful to go talk to a teacher. Ask a question. Help to clarify your understanding. Sometimes doubt can be covering up some other emotion. So it can be helpful to check in when you notice doubt. So, you know, you've you've noticed, okay, there is doubt here. Check in. What does it feel like? What does doubt feel like? When I've done this, you know, I've, I've explored and it's like, oh, grief. There's grief here. That's what doubt feels like. And I was caught for two hours one afternoon at Spirit Rock on a long retreat, just completely struggling with doubt. And when I finally recognized it, it's like, oh, doubt is present. I guess doubt is what I need to practice with. What does doubt feel like? I just felt so much grief. I could be with the grief. And in being with the grief, there was no doubt. So it can be helpful to check in. You know, the question, what does doubt feel like, can sometimes open us to um, something underneath, a fear, an uncertainty, some other emotion, depression, perhaps. On one retreat, I felt, I was, I, I felt like there was a lot of doubt it was an early retreat. I think it was my second retreat. And um, so I decided I would ask a question in the hall um, in the question and answer period. And I was sitting there trying to frame my question in my mind about doubt. And I heard my, in my mind, I heard the question be framed with the first few words of every question started with, I'm afraid that. And when I heard this five or six times, I began to think, 
Maybe this isn't doubt. Maybe this is fear. I never even got a chance to ask my question. But I started just noticing that actually fear was everywhere. There, that, that, that actually that the doubt had been kind of masking this fear. You know, somebody would walk up next to me and whew, I'd feel this fear. So the fear was quite pre- uh, predominant. It was there a lot. And I could be with it. It wasn't an overwhelming fear. But it was just that it had been hidden from me by this doubt. If the doubt is about what kind of practice to do, should I do this or should I do that? Maybe I should do this. No, I should do that. Just pick one. It really doesn't matter that much. You can pick one, explore it, see what happens, run the experiment. The antidote to doubt, the main antidote to doubt is connecting with experience. When we are lost in doubt, we have gotten disconnected from experience. We are completely in a world of our thoughts, of our projections, of our ideas. We're not, as Joseph says, we're not even in the vicinity of our experience when we're lost in doubt. And so, if we can simply connect with experience, this question, what does doubt feel like? That begins to connect us again with experience. When we connect with experience, doubt actually doesn't stand much of a chance. Sometimes we we might listen to the voice of doubt and then apply a little bit of a teaching and then listen to the voice of doubt and apply a little bit of the teaching. That's kind of like putting the kettle on and off the stove. We just need to connect with our experience. Sustaining the attention counters that wavering mind of doubt. One of our, um, I think one of our ways that doubt comes up for us is through belief through views, that, well, since I'm experiencing some mind state, take your pick, fear, anxiety, dread, lust, whatever, since I'm experiencing boredom, since I'm experiencing boredom, I must not be doing the practice right. So that Again, that um, the practice, the sense of practice isn't working because we're experiencing something. Can you just connect with, actually what's in the way there is the belief that the practice isn't working. Can you just connect with boredom? Can you connect with fear, anxiety, worry, depression, lust? In that very connection is the antidote to doubt. Another thing that supported me in my practice around doubt is to take refuge. This kind of emerged spontaneously. It can emerge spontaneously, but on one retreat I was really feeling like I just I just couldn't be mindful. You know, every time I'd try to be mindful, it's like I couldn't 
couldn't be very mindful. Mine was just all over the place. And I was kind of wavering. It's like, oh, I'm such a horrible yogi. I can't be at all mindful. This practice doesn't work. And then I'd take a step and I'd feel my foot on the ground. Oh, I'm a good yogi. I can feel my foot on the ground. And then oh, my mind is all over the place. and it's, I can't pay attention. And, and at some point I realized that when I could take a step and feel the foot on the ground, that wasn't me that was doing that. It was just the capacity of the mind that can be aware. And that... For me, that's the way I understand the, um, the refuge in the Buddha. That it's the refuge in the Buddha for me is the refuge in our capacity for awakeness. And there it was. It was just all by itself. Awareness appearing in a footstep. It's like, wow, okay, you know, I'll just take refuge in that capacity. I'll just, that, I can take refuge in the Buddha. It gave me a great feeling of ease around my struggles with my mind. You know, it's like I couldn't control my mind. It was so clear I couldn't control my mind. But every now and then, there would be this awareness that was very clear. We can also take refuge in the Dharma, the refuge in the practice itself. Just sit and walk. One, uh, one teacher suggested to one student to put a sign in their room when in doubt follow the schedule just sit and walk the practice will unfold if you just continue I think it was James that said that Bhikkhu Bodhi said there's two things we must start and we must continue just continue the practice Another support for countering doubt is to cultivate faith, cultivate the quality of confidence. There's a few ways to do this. I mentioned one a little bit earlier. Reflecting on ways that your practice has supported you. If you find yourself in doubt, in a kind of a, a hindrance attack of doubt, it can be helpful to remind yourself that it hasn't always been like this and that actually you have had times when you've directly known for yourself the value of this practice. There's not one of you that hasn't experienced this. There's no way you would be coming on a retreat of this length if you didn't have some of that confidence, some of that verified experience. So recall sometimes when your faith has been verified very helpful to reflect on that. That supports our faith, our confidence, our trust in the practice. Also recognizing when confidence is actually present. You know, at times when the practice is unfolding and you have a sense of engagement and connection with your experience, sometimes there can be a sense of confidence there. Acknowledge that. Actually recognizing that quality. You know, mindfulness has this capacity that it uh, helps. When we, when we are mindful of beautiful qualities of mind, like confidence, it increases their tendency to occur in the future. 
And when we bring our mindfulness to the hindrances, it decreases their likelihood of occurring in the future. So mindfulness has this great property. You know, it, it supports the beautiful qualities and allows us to let go of the unwholesome qualities. And so actually recognizing, being mindful of the quality of confidence will support it to arise more frequently. And likewise, another support for confidence is to recognize when other beautiful qualities come. Guy talked about this this morning in the, in the guided meditation. You know, recognize when mindfulness arises. You know, notice it. There's a, a host of beautiful mind states that come as we practice. And sometimes as we're practicing, we're kind of focused on the suffering. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at our aversion. We're looking at our, our um, pain in our leg and the aversion to it. And we're not quite so aware that while we're actually being mindful of that, that mindfulness is being cultivated and patience is being cultivated. I remember on one long retreat, I had incredible kind of clamping down around my heart. And I could barely... It felt like there was very little I could do to be mindful of anything else. And so I could just walk back and forth and feel this incredible pain in my heart. But in that walking back and forth, I said, well, at least I'm cultivating patience. Recognizing that strengthens that quality. So recognizing these beautiful qualities, recognizing mindfulness, interest, joy, calm, equanimity, Kindness, concentration, truthfulness, patience, compassion. Beautiful qualities arise for us as we practice. As we recognize them, this cultivates the soil for faith, which undermines the soil the doubt can grow in. So really our our practice, our faith related to this wisdom, we keep coming back to suffering. We can use an exploration of suffering understanding suffering. This is our practice. This is what we're doing here. And use suffering as a guide. Confidence in this teaching of the Four Noble Truths gives us a sense that when we're experiencing suffering, it's not a mistake. It's actually the direction that we can meet. If we can meet that suffering, it's the direction for our freedom. There's sometimes a teaching. We get the lessons that we need. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's not like the, the it's kind of, that's kind of a new age teaching. You know, we get the lessons we need. It's not like that the world out there, the universe is out there conspiring somehow to create the situations that will give us the lessons we need. It's our own minds that are struggling against situations. The lessons that we need 
are created because we struggle against things as they are. So meeting our suffering is the very point, the very doorway through which our freedom can be found. All it takes is the willingness to do it. And let's sit for a few minutes. 